Sad day for us, apes. A very, very sad day out there. Of course, we're very glad that you came and joined us on the live stream here today. Great to see all of you guys. It is a sad day where we do lay to rest Mr. Charlie Thomas Munger of Omaha, Nebraska, then out in California. He was Warren Buffett's right-hand man, one of the absolute goats of investing. We're going to talk about him much more later on in the presentation here today. We did dedicate the Thought Banana section for him. We have a little bit of a video to go over as well. But just know that that's going to be kind of the main focus of our talk here today. But before we get into that, we do have some other stuff going on in markets that we should get to. Now, RIP Charlie Munger, we'll talk more later on. Equity markets during the day, however, did have a fairly nice day. It was, you know, nothing major at all. The NASDAQ rose about 0.29% with the Dow closely behind it, 0.24%. Russell 2K and other small caps did fall off on the day. But, hey, those room temperature IQs over at WSL Alpha managed to give us another four-bit increase. That means between the past two days, we've been managed to rise almost a whole 10 basis points. So definitely a great job from the guys over there. We're so thankful to have them. Anyway. Moving on down below to some of the banana bits for the day. CNBC has a great reporting. They did a great job. Or, excuse me, the Wall Street Journal has a great reporting. They did a great job reporting on Charlie Munger's life and legacy. Um, it's almost as if they had something prepared for it. You know, to me, Charlie didn't look a day over 87 at the very least. Uh, when I saw that he had passed, I thought it was must have been some kind of freak accident. But it was almost like they had this prepared for it or something. So either way, definitely go ahead and check that out because... Charlie was one of the greats. He was not just of Wall Street, but of off streets. Uh, just all-around great guy. We'll get into him more later on. Now, moving on below, Goldman Sachs and Apple are going through a bit of a rough patch in their relationship. Now, we're not sure if Apple is going to fully break up with Goldman. We don't know if they want to dump them just yet. But Goldman clearly didn't bring to the table what Apple thought they were going to. So they're looking to uh, kind of reassess the relationship there if Apple is still going to be issuing credit cards through that. Moving on down below, the Cybertruck, I know you guys have all been dying to get your hands on one of these things. We can definitely all afford the $69,420 price target that these things carry. So I personally can't wait. I'm probably going to buy about 10 or 15 on Thursday once they actually start getting delivered. Definitely be on the lookout for that. You're gonna, you might even start to see them on streets over the next couple of weeks, particularly if you're there in Austin, San Francisco, Boston, one of these other very tech-enabled places. Be on the lookout because you'll probably see those going by fairly soon. Now, of course, we did want to also link to some of Charlie Munger's contributions to society in addition to just his investings. Of course, we have this book's Poor Charlie's Almanac, basically a play on Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. Charlie often talked about how much he admired or respected Ben Franklin. We'll get into that a little bit later on. And, of course, the second book on success. Uh, definitely go ahead and check those out. A lot of, wi lot of wisdom from Charlie and the whole Munger team. Moving on down below, our story of the day related to macroeconomics here. Not our story of the day, because that's obviously going to be Charlie, but this is our macro story of the day, I guess, and that is the great rate gamble. That's essentially what's going on in markets right now. So really, there weren't any major releases yesterday or anything, so we took the chance to step back and kind of see what's going on with interest rates, because that really is the whole macro story, at least at this moment. So compared to the rest of American history, I would say, this line going up on a chart is roughly about equivalent to World War One, World War Two combined, the Revolutionary War, something like that. It's a huge deal, of course. This line going up on this chart is roughly equivalent to those millions and millions of deaths and countless suffering that came along with it, I'd say. And that would be J-Pow's rate hikes. You know, basically what we're seeing here um, is, of course, just a tightening of the overall financial conditions and 
in an attempt to slow down the economy. Obviously, that's what's been going on. We went ahead and recap rates a little bit. We got 10 hikes in a row, bringing us up to this 5.25 to 5.5% level. 10 hikes in a row, and then an additional one in July. Uh, and now we're kind of in that wait and see mode. September and October, we both got holds. And now markets don't really know what to do with it. You know, we can go over here and take a look at the massive run-up that we saw over here. This is the entire history of the effective federal funds rate. Uh, and if we go ahead and reduce it a little bit to just the century, we can see that this tightening cycle is much faster than anything that we've ever seen, especially in recent history. So anybody on Wall Street right now has never seen any faster tightening cycle than this. We go ahead and shift over to the CME watch uh, tool here. This essentially takes the market weighted probabilities based on interest rate futures and tells us what the market is expecting the Fed to do with rates over the next several meetings. So it looks like here, everybody's pretty much expecting a hold in December. If anything differs from that, expect a big market reaction. As we move out to January, it's roughly the same, you know, very much still expected to be in the same range. And then we get to March and that's where things change up a little bit. Basically 50-50 odds of being held same or cutting with a very slight chance of an actual raise. And don't even get me started on May because that's where things get really hectic over here. These odds also change day by day. Still may a 50% chance that we actually do see one cut by May. It doesn't necessarily imply that it's going to be in May, but basically saying that by May we'll see one cut. And then as we move out even beyond May to the June 2024 meeting, uh, it just basically becomes a normal curve of expected rate outcomes at this point. And that's what we see as we extend further and further into the future. We go ahead and look at December of next year, and really nobody knows what's going on, but the greatest likelihood, as you can see here, the highest odds, 30% chance, is that rates are going to be in the range of the 400-425 basis points. That would imply at least five 25 basis point cuts from where we are right now. Definitely would uh, kind of boost equity markets. But the big question is, why would they be cutting like that? And that's kind of where markets diverge right now. So a lot of people think that, you know, the Fed will be able to just cut, kind of reduce the tightness of the financial system in order to uh, get inflation. Well, not in order to, but because inflation will move back to 2% kind of on its own, the Fed will be able to kind of cut down to that 4 to 4.5% 4 range or somewhere within that range in order to uh, kind of allow the economy to achieve its full kind of potential growth. But there's a lot of other people who say that the reason for those cuts is going to be because the economy is going to be in such a huge slowdown. So they basically see this disinflation that we're currently seeing and that that's going to turn into some kind of recessionary picture with consumer spending on the retreat and everything that comes along with that. So essentially what they're expecting in that sense, or at least on that side of the coin, is for the economy to be in such a bad picture that the Fed has to cut by 125 to 150 basis points by the end of December of next year. Whereas on the other side, the more positive side of the equation is that it's just going to be kind of a traditional, you know, run of the mill uh, Fed cut because we have that more room to run and we don't necessarily need all this tightening going on anymore. That really is the two sides of the coin that the markets are debating right now. The bond market is very much on the side of that recessionary outcome, whereas equity markets are still trying to be a little bit optimistic and as well, because obviously when rates go down, equity markets are going to go up. And the last kind of piece here to be considering is, of course, the Fed's credibility. So the Fed has this really important tool called forward guidance, essentially where they tell you what they're going to do and whether or not you want to listen to them, because remember, it is a government agency, is up to you. That's totally your, up to your own discretion. But it is a tool that a lot of the market likes to listen to based on, you know, kind of the wisdom of the crowds and everything. What we're seeing right now is the Fed's credibility is somewhat at play. So they're coming out here and they're saying, nope, it's going to be higher for longer. We absolutely have to keep rates up. 
they've been very kind of hawkish in this sense until we got uh, the Wilder speech yesterday where he actually kind of opened up the possibility of cuts going forward and, and most importantly in the first half of 2024. But essentially what we hear from Jay Powell and the rest of the FOMC is that we can expect rates to be held in the same range for a much longer time. However, yeah, there's a big question right now whether or not if markets believe that. It doesn't really seem like they totally do. What we're likely seeing is the Fed trying to kind of prop up those interest rates by saying that they're going to be held higher for longer because if we reduce too quickly, inflation could very well just kind of speed right back into where it was at about this time of last year. And that would obviously kind of ruin the whole thing that everybody's been working for. But then again, if the Fed actually does cut while this whole time leading up to the cut saying that no, retire for longer, retire for longer, and they cut out of nowhere, their credibility and that tool of forward guidance is going to be all but shattered. I mean, who knows if that can be kind of rebuilt from there, but that's what we're seeing going on here. Do you trust the Fed? That's the question of the day. Moving on down with the stock movements going on here. PDD Holdings. And PDD Holdings is, uh, this is the company formerly known as Pinduoduo. Now, Pinduoduo, as you guys may know, is an agricultural commerce company out of China. That's kind of how they originally started. Now they're getting huge into general e-commerce. I don't know if you guys know the Tenyu app, but it's one of those kind of bullshitty things, much like uh, Shein or like one of these other cheap-ass retailers or something like that. So if you're a scumbag and you don't care about the quality of items that you buy for your family and friends on Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever other holiday you celebrate, definitely go ahead and check out Tenyu because it's pretty cool looking stuff that I guarantee you it will fall apart within the first three hours of being open. So if you hate your family, it's a great way to give them a gift and make them still feel like you value their presence. But either way, Pinduoduo, the company behind Temu and a bunch of other e-commerce apps, they were able to deliver one hell of a quarter. They reported about 11.64 yuan per share, or yuan per share versus the expected 8.94. And obviously that beat earnings. Revenue almost doubled compared to Q3 of last year, rising 94%. Clearly a great day from them. Main drivers is, of course, that Temu app. It's kind of exploded in popularity internationally. But the other big thing is that China's economic slowdown wasn't nearly as bad as many had in, not intended, as many had thought it was going to be. Uh, and so, of course, consumer spending remaining strong in its home country definitely helped boost that revenue and earnings figure a bit. Moving on down to Twilio, this is one of those weird companies that you've definitely interacted with, but probably... I've never heard of it before unless you're a huge investing nerd like most of us that watch this. But either way, Twilio is one of those companies that kind of powers the ability for apps and other services to be able to send you text messages and other notifications. They uh, when it, they didn't have, you know, earnings or kind of any announcements or anything. But what they did have is a lot of intention from an activist investor. That activist is called Anton Funds. These guys have built up about a 50, $50 million, excuse me, $50 million stake in Twilio and are pushing for First and foremost, a full sale of the business, or at the very least, a divestiture of two of Twilio's business units. I'm not nearly smart enough to understand what those business units actually did, but apparently these guys are. And the reason that Anson, you know, kind of went into this definitely calls the timing into question because they did just steal some talent from a competitor over Allegiant Partners, who was already doing the exact same thing. And now Anson is just bringing that same energy. We'll see what happens there. Moving on down to Interactive Brokers, not a whole lot of news here, to be quite honest. It was a big name that fell a big amount, but we couldn't really find any major reasons for it unless the market just hates crypto so much that because Interactive Brokers is launching a crypto network in Hong Kong, they actually decided to shell off shares there. Definitely going to want to go check that out, and especially some other reports because names like Bank of America and other big firms are actually growing pretty bullish on Interactive Brokers, so definitely worth a second look for all you stock pickers out there. 
And finally, we have Micron, who actually did report earnings. It's one of our last remnants of this earnings season. We still have a couple more to come over this next week, but not many more in terms of uh, actual important companies. Micron does happen to be one of them as well, the top chip suppliers internationally. Now, they came out, uh, basically, they have their earnings report coming out on the 30th, I believe, which is going to be tomorrow. But they gave us a bit of an update for what kind of range we can expect for that uh, fiscal quarter. They bumped their target range for revenue up to about $4.7 billion, when it had been in the range of more like $4.2 to $4.6 billion or so. Markets weren't too pleased with that. They wanted this bump up to be much higher, apparently. So this is exactly why we can't have nice things on Wall Street. Even exceeding expectations isn't good enough for these traders. All right, now let's get into our story of the day. Rest in peace to Charlie Munger. As I mentioned towards the start of this live stream here, we do have a bit of a video I believe it's going to be from CNBC, where they recap some of the most important things about Munger's life. And I think we can go ahead and get that started in just a second. Here we have some sad news to share. Charlie Munger, Berkshire Hathaway's vice chairman and Warren Buffett's longtime business partner and close friend, has died at the age of 99, just a little more than a month shy of his 100th birthday. Berkshire Hathaway just releasing a statement. Berkshire Hathaway of few minutes ago was advised by members of Charlie Munger's family that he peacefully died this morning at a California hospital. Warren Buffett says in the release, quote, Berkshire Hathaway could not have been built to its present status without Charlie's inspiration, wisdom, and participation. Munger was well known for his one-liners at the annual Berkshire Hathaway meetings and for packing the house at his own Westco and then daily journal meetings. A man of deep knowledge, Munger worked as a lawyer before moving into investing. Munger had eight children and countless fans. Charlie Munger was, again, 99 years old. So once again, rest in peace to Charlie Munger, the absolute fucking legend of Wall Street. Charlie was one of those rare breeds who, in finance, was an actual smart person and not just really good at pretending to be smart like most of us. He had the wisdom of, you know, a thousand-year life, quite honestly, and with those one-liners and all the other, you know, great content and great advice that he gave us, I mean, he really will be remembered for quite a long time, hopefully forever, especially in the investing community. I mean, when we saw that news come across the screen yesterday, it's like getting punched in the face by your grandfather, quite honestly, seeing something that devastating come along. Um, now, we went ahead and recapped a bit of Munger's life. We definitely didn't do him justice in the space that we have for the Thought Banana section. Would recommend going ahead and checking out some more sources to find out more. But to give you guys the quick rundown, Munger and Buffett actually started their relationship much longer than uh, Berkshire Hathaway was actually founded. Much longer before Berkshire Hathaway was founded, I should say. They actually began their relationship in the 60s and the 70s more formally, but they had crossed paths at Buffett's grandfather's grocery store. Both of them worked there during the same time period when they were young in the 30s and early 1940s. And then uh, Buffett finally founded Berkshire in around the 50s, later 50s. Munger came in in the 60s and 70s, and they kind of developed their partnership throughout those two decades, but weren't formally partners. And then in 1978, Munger formally joined Berkshire as the number two vice chairman of the company. Now, he was 54 years old at the time. He had already had a stellar career where he had been the, uh, you know, he had been a real estate attorney at this point, an architect, and done a whole bunch of other things to amass his own fortune. So he then started his own kind of investing partnership out of California, which then kind of merged into Buffett's partnership. And this is kind of what formed the basis of the Berkshire Hathaway that we know today with having those two figureheads of uh, Buffett and Munker. Now, obviously, any of us would kill to have a resume like that by the time we're 99. 
But Munger's biggest contributions to society were far outside the investing landscape, at least uh, a lot of people would say. So some of his greatest contributions were his writings, his you know wit and his wisdom, and most importantly, it's going to be those one-liners. So we summed up some of our favorite one-liners here and some of our favorite Charlie Munger quotes. Go ahead and definitely take a look at some of those. I think one of my favorite, one of his wise quotes is the, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. Basically sums up human nature and our relationship to economics and financial markets. Uh, it's really all about incentives. We know that. It's a good thing to remind yourself. And then if we scroll on down below, of course, Munker was quite the funny guy as well. I mean, he had some of the best quips, best quotes of all time that I've ever heard in a company's earnings report or a company's um, kind of uh, annual meeting or whatever it may be. I mean, Elon definitely has some great quotes as well, but Munger is the untouched goat of the uh, quotability at an investor conference or investor meeting. So things like, you know, has to pee on an electric fence to learn not to do it. Thank you very much, Charlie. I have been peeing on electric fences since I was about six years old. Would have really appreciated him letting me know that I didn't have to try it to learn not to do it, you know, before actually going out and doing it myself. Now, he does have some great uh, other quotes right here talking about things like the Bishop of Boston going to strip clubs and things of that nature. All just that wise, merry investor mentality that Charlie Munger is best known for. I mean, just rest in peace once again. True man and legend. There was certainly no myth about how great this guy was. Now, we can go on down to the quote of the day. One of our favorite Charlie Munger quotes are Charles Thomas Munger. He said, sometimes I call crypto crapo. Sometimes I call crypto shit. It's just ridiculous that anybody would buy this stuff. If you guys don't recall, Munger was a bit of a curmudgeon when it came to the crypto industry. He was definitely not a big fan. You know, take that as you will. Uh, a lot of, I know a lot of you guys out there aren't big fans yourselves as you. Make sure to let us know in the comments and emails that you send us every day. But either way, that's always great to see. Definitely let us know uh, what's on your mind on these days. Send us you know, some inspiration on Charlie Munger, how he impacted your life at all. And most importantly, go ahead and read his books. Go check out poor Charlie's Almanac on success. And uh, once again, just shout out to the absolute goat that we can all see right here. RIP Charlie Munger. Hope you guys have a great day. Bye now. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way. Patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.